You turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 29. And this morning, we are in our second week of our series through Jeremiah. And last week, we saw what led into exile. And this week, we will hear from Jeremiah how to live in exile. This is so important for us because we too are exiles. We saw last week how Exile is the universal human story since our first father and mother were exiled from the garden. And the hope of the scriptures and the hope of the gospel is ultimately the hope of homecoming. But for us as God's people, exile has another level of application beyond just the human story. Because though we live out the reality of our hope of homecoming already, we also live out the reality of our present exile as we are citizens of heaven. When the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians, he addressed it to elect exiles. And then in the second chapter of that letter, he urges them as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh and live honorably among the Gentiles that God may be glorified. Peter sees us as exiles living in our own Babylon. He even uses that word, Babylon, as a metaphor for the unbelieving culture that Christians live in the midst of. And this is becoming increasingly apparent to us in Western culture, isn't it? The the Barna Group has called our accelerated complex culture a digital Babylon. There are significant shifts that are happening to make us realize our exile, that we are not in our true home. We are sojourners. And This truth is clear to many Christians around the world, and it's becoming more and more clear to us here. A sense of alienation, dislocation, pressure to assimilate. In order for us to face the future without fear, without restless anxiety, we must recapture this vision of the Christian life that the Apostle Peter had, that we are sojourners and exiles. We are in Babylon And God has placed us here. And if that's true, then exile may actually be good for us. What if we can ultimately thrive in Babylon? Our faith flourishing in glorious ways in the midst of exile. How are we to live while we're here? What hope are we offered to counteract our homesickness? These are the things that Jeremiah teaches us. <clears throat> so let's listen to him together now. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams they dream for it is a lie and they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. 
For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I've sent you into exile. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh Jesus, speak, Lord for your servants are listening. Amen. <clears throat> we are calling this series through Jeremiah heavy healing because multiple times in this book, God chastises the leaders of Israel for healing his people's wounds lightly. His people are deeply wounded and, and the people who ought to be directing them and guiding them towards genuine healing are instead treating these mortal wounds like they're scratches and bruises, giving them naive hope and false assurances. Their wounds need heavy healing. And that text that we just read was a letter from Jeremiah that Jeremiah wrote and he had it sent to exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem into exile in Babylon. And notice how he says in verse eight, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. What's he talking about there? Well, if you read the previous chapter, chapter 28, you understand exactly what he's talking about. Jeremiah had this run-in with a false prophet named Hananiah. And Hananiah was one of those people that God talked about when he said they were healing their wounds lightly. He was, he, when exile began, Hananiah prophesied, prophesied that it would only last two years. A short, temporary hiccup that they didn't need to worry about or let interrupt their lives in any significant way. They didn't need to submit to this foreign king. And this is understandably was a very welcome message, wasn't it? This is a message the people wanted to hear. The problem is it wasn't true. And Jeremiah, the genuine prophet of God, had been prophesying that God had ordained this coming exile. And he was calling them to submit to Babylonian rule. God even had Jeremiah fashion straps and yoke bars to wear around his neck and shoulders as a vivid image of their captivity to the king of Babylon and how they must serve him. So Jeremiah's walking around with these, these yoke bars and he said to the king of Judah, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. But Hananiah, the false prosperity prophet, swaggered up to Jeremiah in the midst of the leaders of Israel and he took those yoke bars off of Jeremiah and he broke it and he held it up and he said, thus says the Lord, even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon from the neck of the nations within two years. It almost makes you want to clap and say, amen. But God sends Jeremiah back to Hananiah and says, you have broken wooden bars, but you have replaced them with bars of iron. He says, listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you and you have made this people trust in a lie. This year you shall die 
because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. Hananiah's light healing would result in a heavier burden because he led the people to trust in lies. And this is something that Jeremiah has to contend with again and again. Prophet after prophet pops up with much more appealing messages than the one Jeremiah brings. In chapter 23, God sends Jeremiah with this message. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouths of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. So these prophets were filling people with vain hopes, he says. To people who stubbornly followed their own heart rather than the word of God, they, he pre, they, these prophets preach, it will be well with you. Nothing bad will happen to you. And why do they do this? Because people want to hear it. And when you tell people what they want to hear, they usually honor you and elevate you and treat you well. But let's not act like this is isolated to ancient Israel. Because there are many people today who preach prosperity messages of personal health and wealth like we aren't sojourners. Amen. And nationalistic messages promising cultural victory like we aren't exiles. And even beyond religion, this is essentially what the echo chambers of social media and news outlets have become. A place where you hear what you want to hear, what you already agree with. No challenges to your perspectives, just a tickling of your ears. The Apostle Paul warned of this to his young apprentice Timothy, that people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. We want to be affirmed. We want to be pacified, which is natural. But we, if we're not careful, we can let these desires close our minds to what God might actually be saying. And sometimes the truth involves challenging words. Hard truths, even suffering. And this can seem less appealing on the surface. But we've got to see deeper than the surface. Because Jeremiah was pointing the people not to a worse message, but to a better one. It didn't have the flashy triumphalist facade, but it did have enduring hope and genuine healing and counterintuitive blessing for themselves and for others. In fact, Jeremiah's message is one of prosperity. It's just a different understanding of prosperity than that of Hananiah. God wants his people to prosper. He just has a deeper, more wonderful idea of what prosperity means. There's a great illustration of this in Jeremiah 13. God tells Jeremiah to take his loincloth and to hide it under a rock. And then after many days, he has him go and get it. And, and he goes and he gets it and it's dirty and torn and tattered and destroyed. And he says, it's not prospering. He uses the same Hebrew word as Psalm 1 when he talks about the, the man who delights in the law of the Lord and prospers in all he does. That word for prosperity, Jeremiah says, it's not true of this loincloth. It's not prospering. The, as the ESV translates it, it was good for nothing. It had been ruined. And he goes on to say that this is representative of the evil people who stubbornly follow their own heart. They will be good for nothing. They will not prosper. 
And listen to verse 11 in chapter 13. He says this, For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. He's saying they were, we were meant to cling to him, to become a praise and a glory. But his people were not living in the fullness of who they are meant to be. And so we see what it means to prosper from this story about the loincloth. What does it mean? It, mean, it means that when something prospers, it is to be of good use for what it was meant for. To prosper is to succeed in doing and being what you were made to be and to do. And what's so different about this view of prosperity from the heretical prosperity gospel is that this biblical kind of prosperity can happen even in the midst of hardship and suffering. You don't have to have health or wealth to truly prosper. You can prosper in adversity. One of my favorite passages of scripture is the eighth chapter of Romans. And near the end of that, he says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, he says in, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you see? He doesn't say that these things won't happen. He says in these things, we can prosper in Christ. Back when J.I. Packer died, Drew shared a quote uh, from him with me that has really stuck with me ever since. He said, if you ask, why is this happening? No light may come. But if you ask, how am I to glorify God now? There will always be an answer. If we're asking the right questions, we can have clarity on the path of prosperity, true prosperity of living out our divine calling. And that's what Jeremiah points us to. That's what he's pointing these people to. Jeremiah says that the exile will not be two years like Hananiah prophesied, but 70 years. That's a lot longer to say the least, right? So he tells those people in exile how they are, ought to live in light of this. He says, build houses, Plant gardens, multiply there, and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of that place where I've sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. He's saying, you've got to think both smaller and bigger. Hananiah's message, that put you somewhere in the middle, lingering in limbo, just stuck in a situation you're waiting to get to the end of. But Jeremiah's message helps you be present to see your calling in this moment and also to lift your eyes to, to a greater purpose and plan beyond your puny little lifetime. We often think of our lives like Hananiah, living for what's the life that's just out of reach, buying time until that next season of life. And so we miss the opportunity to truly prosper in the present. In this sense, we need to think smaller not just be waiting, but be living. But we also need to think bigger because our real hope is beyond just that next season of life. Amen. Too often we think of our lives as isolated and atomistic rather than seeing us, ourselves as a link in a chain stretching back and before us. Thinking little of who and what will, will come after us and what we'll leave behind. 
To live in exile, we must have a perspective that is both smaller and bigger. This is what Jeremiah's letter to the exiles calls us to. So let's dig into this. Let's start with what I've called thinking smaller. Because Jeremiah says to build houses, plant gardens. In other words, this may not be your favorite place, but it's your home now. Settle into it. He's saying to the exiles, your life here and now is just as valuable and meaningful as it was in Jerusalem. Exile may not be your choice, but it is what you are given. This time and place is given to you by God to live in for him. So he says, build families, invest in the future, work for the welfare, the shalom. That word is translating the word shalom, the peace of that place and the people. In other words, don't wallow in your self-pity, but give your all. Throw yourself into this life with vigor and vitality. Invest in Babylon on God's terms, and that means pray. He tells them to pray for the shalom of Babylon and its peace and wholeness and welfare. God is telling these exiles, and I believe he is telling us as exiles, that our lives are about more than being comfortable and prosperous in worldly terms. Our purpose is about being prosperous in faith and faithfulness and to live deeply in the actual circumstances God has given to us and placed us in. Living in love and seeking truth and cultivating beauty and hope and pursuing peace and being peacemakers Jeremiah is saying this kind of true prosperity and flourishing, it wasn't happening before where you were before. So let it happen here in exile. Try living your true calling out here in Babylon and you may be surprised by joy. This is a needed message for us in exile. To think smaller, to actually see our present moment, to see where and when we are right now is the only real opportunity we have to live by faith. Being in exile, whether it's being in a hostile culture or just in a place that you don't want to be or around people that you don't want to be around, it will press you to choose where you focus your attention. Will it be on yourself and on your lack Or will you, in firm faith, press your face, your present calling, and focus on living as best you can to honor God with your actual life in the actual place that you find yourself? It's easier to complain and feel sorry for yourself and wish away your present life for some romanticized past or some imagined future. But the only real place you have to live, to really live, is where you are right now. Here is your opportunity to be a human in the image of God, where you are right now and the circumstances you are given this day, the walls and people that surround you each day, the occupation that occupies the time God has given you. God is saying there is no way back, but there is a way forward. You will waste your life saying, I don't like it here. I don't like the way things are. I wouldn't be the way it was. Instead, you can say, God has brought us here and by his grace, I can live out my calling here. More important than the emperor of Babylon or the politics of Babylon or the culture and economy of Babylon is the God of Babylon who is the God over all creation and is my God. 
and your God who is with us. This must be our perspective in exile. God wants his people to keep an open mind that though they have lost everything important to them, they still have the most important thing and they will have it. And then through this, they will come to have it more vividly and experientially because of exile. They have God. We have God with us. And so we see our lives as partnership with the almighty and we seek his peace for the place and the people we are among. Jeremiah says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. This is our calling. Now put yourself in their shoes for a minute. How would you feel about Babylon? Probably not very good, not even neutral. After they take you from your home, you would feel like they're your enemy. It's not human nature to seek the welfare of your enemy. The temptation of exile would be to revolt against the tyranny, fighting against Babylon, or on the other side, to completely assimilate and just become like the Babylonians in every regard. But Jeremiah gives us a different calling. Not fighting or withdrawing over here, and not giving in or compromising over here but a different, more powerful, God-glorifying way of relating to the surrounding culture to work towards and pray for its shalom, its peace and welfare and wholeness. And lucky for us, God has given us a book recounting the story of some of these exiles who did exactly that, who were trying to live out what Jeremiah called them to, the book of Daniel. We know that Daniel received the words of Jeremiah because he talks about him and his prophecies. Daniel lived the calling of an exile. He served Babylon faithfully. He went as far as he could in receiving Babylonian culture without compromising his faithfulness. And there were many instances, though, where he had to draw the line. Like when he was commanded not to pray to anyone but the king of Babylon, he couldn't go that far. And they punished him for it, which is ironic because if he's being faithful to what Jeremiah has called him to, then at least a part of what he was praying for is what? For them. And Daniel and his friends submitted to the king, but they couldn't give him their allegiance as if he were God, revealing their true loyalty. Their faithfulness to God, it resulted in a a critique of Babylon's idolatry and arrogance and injustice, but they did this respectfully and by laying down their lives. Jesus later said something similar to Jeremiah, but even more explicitly, didn't he? Because he said, love your enemies. And Pray for those who persecute you. And then he goes on to say, if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even Gentiles do that? Several authors have noted that this call to love your enemies, it was one of the most cited commands of the early church. It was like the most common life verse of the first 300 years of Christianity. And that's probably because those first few hundred years were pretty rough on Christians, especially in the second century. Yet in the midst of intense opposition, the church thrived. One scholar of second century Christianity said it was not primarily what the Christians said that carried weight with outsiders. It was what they did and embodied that was both disconcerting and converting. 
It was their habitus, their reflexes and ways of life that suggested that there was another way to perceive reality that made Christians interesting, challenging, and worth investigating. And I love how he describes the second century Christians as disconcerting and converting. They were odd, yet accessible, challenging, yet approachable, weirdly resistant to cultural norms, yet humbly respectful of leaders and neighbors. Their community and their kindness, it was compelling. They didn't assimilate and they didn't compromise, but they also didn't fight or revolt or withdraw completely. And they revolutionized the Roman world amidst heavy persecution because they understood their calling as exiles. They lived out the, the Apostle Peter's exhortations. I mentioned that text briefly earlier. Let me read you more of it, a whole paragraph. Peter wrote, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And then he summarizes it all like this. Listen, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is Peter speaking to God's people as aliens and strangers, sojourners and exiles. Live to glorify God in the situation he has placed you in. He doesn't get the address wrong, as Rosaria Butterfield says. He has you here and now for his glory. Think small. We can be tempted to have these lofty spiritual and social big picture concerns while neglecting the obvious choices and people God has placed right in front of us. C.S. Lewis captured this in his screw tape letters where a senior demon is bragging, saying this, I have had patients of my own so well in hand that they could be turned at a moment's notice from impassioned prayer for a wife or son's soul to beating or insulting the real wife without a qualm. Those under, we, like those under screw tape's influence, we can neglect to care for the actual people right in front of us even while espousing some grand social concern or spiritual value. But a part of what God wanted for them is why he wanted them to settle into exile, building homes, planting gardens, growing families, making peace, is that we cannot seek God's peace and his mission in the world without beginning right where we are, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your church, with the real people right in front of you. Think small. But Jeremiah's letter also calls us to think bigger than we tend to do because he offers them this glorious hope, but it's not the kind of comfort we are accustomed to looking for or wanting. Hananiah's false message, for instance, offered tangible hope that they could get a, a grip on. But Jeremiah's message extended exile 68 years longer than that, meaning most of these people to whom he's writing will die before seeing God's deliverance. 
So to find galvanizing reassurance and hope in such a promise, you'd have to value something beyond your own lifetime, wouldn't you? You'd have to see yourself as a part of a bigger story. You need a God's eye perspective if you are to take any comfort at all in Jeremiah's promises. And it seems like God intends for his people to have this bigger perspective. He's saying, you've had enough of living for yourself and your own puny little lifetime on earth and look where it's gotten you. Your myopia, your short-sightedness has shipwrecked your lives. Try thinking bigger, looking beyond yourself, seeing your life as one link in a glorious chain, one chapter in an epic story. So let's read that hopeful message from Jeremiah. It's a famous one. You'll probably recognize it. Starting in verse 10, he says to the exiles, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where I have driven you. It's such a beautiful promise. God assures his people that he has plans for them. He isn't done with them. Even through this trial, he is at work with aims and purposes in them and through them and for them. And notice the ultimate aim of this hope. God's desire for his people as he brings them through exile. It's not just their hope, it's, it's his hope. He says in verse 12, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will be found by you. He's bringing them back to himself. He's longing for intimacy with them again. Restored relationship. Whereas before they, were, they only returned to him in pretense, through this ordeal, he's promising they will return with their whole hearts. Whereas before, Jeremiah says God was near in their mouths and far from their hearts. But through this refining fire of exile, he will be near in their mouths and in their hearts because they will come to him and pray to him and seek him, and he will be found by them. The restoration to their homeland is great, but it's just icing on the cake. The substance of their hope is this restoration of a wholehearted relationship with God. He is their true home. Which points us to thinking bigger in another sense as well. We need a hope bigger than earthly good. A God-sized hope. Hope in the glory of God. A hope for purified, refined faith for ourselves and for the church of Jesus Christ as a whole. Then we can receive exile as a gift, even exile. We, pr we can pray with Jesus as he did in John 17. I do not ask, this is, John, uh, this is Jesus praying. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He's praying for us, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus intercedes for his bride that she would be sanctified. That's his prayer, a shining beacon of holiness in the midst of the world. 
We need a bigger hope beyond ourselves for God's people as a, as a whole around the world and throughout history. We need a vision of the church that the demons shudder at in another passage from the screw tape letters where the demon says this, the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That I confess is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite un invisible to these humans. And he's right in one sense, it is invisible to us, but not as invisible as the devil would like, us, like to believe. By the word of God and by hope, we can have eyes to see what we are a part of. We can hope beyond our momentary lives, beyond things temporal and earthly. We need a hope in the glory of God that isn't swayed by the shifting winds of worldly kingdoms and politics. Bigger than a, a bigger hope that doesn't bend or break under the weight of dashed expectations or delayed results. We need to think bigger so that our hope doesn't wobble and fail when we live our entire lives in exile. But instead, we can remain steadfast and resolute because our God is transcendent and he intends good for us. We are anchored in a hope that plays the long game. And we know that the final victory is the Lord's. Amen. May we rejoice in being a part of his big picture. A small part, but that doesn't mean an insignificant part. A part that is infinitely valuable to him. Vital and integral to his plans, but not even close to the whole picture. And if we don't think this way, to rejoice with God the way he rejoices, we will be tempted by people like Hananiah. Amen. Or we may become like him. Or like those that he led astray. We are being infected by Babylon in subtle ways. I see it. By this self-centered, consumeristic, non-committal culture. So we are only comforted by hope for our own selves and our own lifetime. That's the only thing that comforts us. But the hope God offers here in this passage is not to individuals, but to his people as a whole, which of course includes individuals. But as C.S. Lewis says, when you aim at first things, you get second things thrown in. But when you aim at second things, you lose both. We've got to think bigger to have our lives be about more than just our own little lives. And maybe then we can truly gain our lives and truly live. But if we let ourselves be shaped by our Babylon, we will be ineffective as salt and light. We will lose our saltiness. We've got to hope in God, not in whatever we would like to get from God. And this makes all the practical difference in the world. If you live as citizens of heaven, it will free you from the soul-sucking hamster wheel of trying to make this world your home. This world can never offer you enough to truly satisfy your soul. Amen. And when you stop trying to make your home here because your home is with Christ, then you will be free. And when you stop trying to drain every last drop from this world, then maybe you can pour back into it. This is how you love an enemy, for instance. A command that sounds ridiculous if you really take it seriously and understand it. How do you do such a thing? You love them not for their sake, but for God's sake. 
This is how you continue to serve the weak and the needy, even though in this fallen world, it seems like we never make a dent in the need. How can you not grow weary in doing good? Because you serve the weak and the needy, not for their sake, but for God's sake. How do you commit to a church, the church of Jesus, in a, in a culture that is turning against it or running from it? You live for God and not for yourself. That is how. You believe that he is doing greater things than you can now see or know. To, the, to those Roman emperors of the first and second century, seeing the little fledgling seed of the gospel kingdom, it would have been inconceivable to them that it would outlast the Roman Empire. But you believe that God is doing greater things than you can see or know. Which is this, this story of Israel's exile should teach us so powerfully. Because he had a hope in store for them that is greater than they could comprehend. When he promised to bring them back home, there's another pa passage uh, in Jeremiah 23 where God promises to deliver them from exile. And he says, I will gather this remnant of, this, of, of his flock and out of exile and bring them back to their homeland and they shall be fruitful and multiply. And then he says this, listen closely to this. He says, I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. We can't, we can't read that passage as Christians without thinking of our beloved king, can we? We, with the glorious gift of hindsight, understand this promise far better than they would have, don't we? Yet God gave it to them. In a sense, he's asking them to believe that God will do far greater things than they can comprehend. And we are called to hope with that same kind of hope. But we have the blessed gift of seeing how he's done this in the past, how he fulfilled this promise to the exiled people in ways greater than they could have imagined. That righteous branch of David who will reign as king and save his people and be called the Lord is our righteousness. He is our Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, God incarnate. He would indeed be called the Lord is our righteousness, sharing his righteousness with us. Even as he takes our unrighteousness into himself and destroyed it in his death, giving us new life in his resurrection. That righteous branch of David would become a towering tree of epic proportions, grafting into itself peoples from all nations throughout the world and history and growing into something of such profound beauty that it could hardly have been fathomed by those who first received this promise. Scattered throughout the dark Babylonian empire as they were, he has shown us how to hope we must think bigger and smaller to truly prosper by clinging to Christ. This is his calling on us as elect exiles whose citizenship is in heaven. For from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the same power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let's pray. Holy Father, I pray for us, all of us who are citizens of your kingdom and sojourners on earth, that you will make us resilient in hope.
that you will make us flourish in faith and in faithfulness to our calling to live for your glory where you place us. That we will be so at home with you that we can live faithfully as exiles. I pray that we pursue the welfare of this world, becoming peacemakers, praying for those who are lost and broken and seeking you with all our hearts. Give us those whole hearts toward you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.